You're listening to Modern Marketing, a podcast brought to you by Influicity. At Influicity, we build brand communities that drive revenue. Learn more at Influicity.com. On today's episode, Influicity CEO John Davids talks with Seth Temko, former multi-CMO and strategist with FullOnStrategy.com. Seth, share with us your first insight. Okay. I think a really overlooked area for... And it touches multiple parts of business, but a lot of times it gets put in the product marketing camp, which is go-to-market efforts. So in my past, my history, I was a VP of go-to-market at a company called Yext, which is a, a marketing tech company. And I would say that companies large and small have a pain and needs in go-to-market activities. So let me try to explain my viewpoint on go-to-market and how I talk to consulting clients about it. So go-to-market is this idea that you have products and services and you have opportunities in market. Now, typically, you have multiple opportunities. And so you need to say, I can't do everything. I can't be everything to everyone. So what should I be? And what should I focus on? And typically, the more that you focus, particularly in the beginning, of something new. It could be a new company, it could be a new product, it could be a new service, it could be a new geographic market, but you're making a material change in the business, you have the opportunity to select where you engage and how you engage. Many companies that's either overlooked with a lot of assumptions or it gets very politicized to the point of being debilitating. What are the four areas? Can you recap the four departments that would own GTM? Sure. So bigger companies will have someone in a go-to-market position, but there's a question of where does that role live? Like where's that area of responsibilities? And the reality is go-to-market efforts is matching the opportunities that a business has in market, breaking them down and finding the ones that are most optimal with an approach of how the company in their strategy should approach those markets and market segments in what ways. So you get into the classics of marketing of what is your product? How are you going to promote it? Where are the channels by you're, you're going to select in there? What's your pricing structure? Ultimately, that creates the tactics that become the plan and inform your product, your marketing efforts, your sales efforts, and ultimately your financial models. And so the financial team is included in that. Hmm. And does one player own that? Or do companies often struggle to figure out which player owns that? Absolutely struggle. So a lot of times, it depends on the characteristics of the company. So and a lot of this, let's talk about the type of hyper growth. So the assumption is a company is going to be in a hyper growth mode. If you're a company that's growing at say, 20% or less compounded growth, which by the way, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's that's the way most businesses are are grown if you're not taking in debt or outside capital. That's a good business, but it takes a long time to grow it to a particular mass or size. So what happens now with the, the modern investment thesis is I'm going to take a whole bunch of money and I'm, I'm going to bring it into a company and create time dilation. So I'm going to put in a whole bunch of money. You're going to burn it. You're going to lose money for a period of time and then magically swing into profitability and you're going to take 20 years of growth and shrink it down into a five to seven year footprint. That doesn't afford a lot of opportunity for being incorrect in your market position. So you have to think of it as dog years, right? Every year in a SaaS company that is shooting for hyper growth, 
that has high cash investment beyond what they would normally need in a standard growth rate, then any deviation off course puts you way off the map. So there's a lot of potential risk. Go to market efforts, start with assumptions. So in, um, say, a technology venture where you start out, typically they're asking for five-year projections. That's almost ludicrous. How do you, can you tell me what will happen for yourself personally in five years? You have a lot of data. It's very hard to predict. Now you're brand new. You haven't been in the market. Your products may not be built yet. You haven't really sold them yet. Predict in five years what you're going to do. That would be finance influence, right? So in that case, I would say finance is wagging the dog. However, mm-hmm. if you're in an existing company and you have this pressure for growth rate, you have your plan, you have some history. Usually then it's the revenue teams that have the edict to go and execute. Hey, revenue, go and execute. And I would say in those organizations, which would be more like a Salesforce model, I cannot tell you how highly regarded Salesforce is as the ability to predict and deliver quarter-on-quarter sales performance numbers. They become the model for a lot of tech companies. That's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's just the thing. And in that model, you have this high level of predictability. And so revenue wants to control the mechanisms by which leads and opportunities are created and then have a methodical process for conversion. So in that case, a lot of the go-to-market, and in my case at Yax, I was reporting into the revenue organization. However, if we take a product-led model, and we say that we believe that creating high-value effective products is the best way that we will be successful in the marketplace, then informing product development is in highest regard. And in that case, uh, usually instead of saying go to market, you'd have titles like product marketing, VP of product marketing, a director of product marketing. And they're the ones charged with that. And in that case, they may be reporting into the CTO, the CIO, or product management in some way. So this makes sense. But I guess just to dumb it down a notch, there are different incentives for people in those different roles. So if you are a revenue or salesperson, if you're a marketing person, if you're a product person, if you're a, the, the CFO of a company, you're looking at different things. For example, the CFO cares a lot what the balance sheet looks like, what the cash flow looks like, mm-hmm. whereas the product person might really value what the customer feedback is and how the customer feels and how the product feels in your hand. Whereas the salesperson cares about, am I making commission this month? So how do you actually align incentives so that the company's working as one and not a bunch of competing forces? Well, I'll tell you that I've only come across one company that has done this on an incentive model. And I think it is truly something that everyone should consider. So usually incentives are financial. Hit a revenue goal or a profitability goal and all, all good things cascade from that. However, if a company is customer-centric, customers first, second, and third, in the highest regard. And if you believe that delivering value day-to-day, in and out, every member of your team and entire company is the ideal that you want to match, I would say go and look at your MPS scores and instead reward your how well your customers regard you and what your reputation is. And in that theory, happy customers will stay, will buy more, will recommend you, are referenceable, and become a community that supports your business. One mm-hmm. company out of probably a hundred models that I've ever looked at. 
And if you're uncomfortable with it, do a hybrid model. Say 50% of bonus will be based on revenue metrics and performance, and the other 50% would be based on customer satisfaction, client satisfaction. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity. Since 2015, we've been building brand communities that drive revenue. First, we did it through influencers. Then we added podcasts. Today, we work with world-class brands to build, optimize, and run breakthrough programs that create and capture demand. It's time to stop renting your influence and start owning it. Learn more at Influicity.com. So speaking of go-to-market, we're talking about sort of who's involved and what their roles are. What is the role of creative? Because I would imagine in go-to-market, a lot of success is about how good is this idea to actually capture attention in our media-flooded lives? How much weight do you put on creative versus just getting all the other things right? So on a marketing basis, you have to... I'm going to use a go-to-market lens. Okay, So in a go-to-market lens, I have defined the market that I'm going to go into and I've segmented it. I've looked at it in different ways. Top up, bottom up. Am I looking for the mass market? which is typically highly competitive? Am I looking for niche markets, which are underserved and maybe opportunities? I don't know the business, so I I don't know the exact angle to match, to resource, to need, to timeline, etc. But once you've determined that, then you're going to determine your buyers and your influencers. That's your traditional personas. Someone needs to manage that. Someone needs to create that. Those two things are your market understanding and who buys and why they buy and and who are the people who influence those who are buyers. And then ultimately, beyond the sales conversion, who are your customers? Who use your products and services? How do you keep them happy? Someone needs to own all that. That information then informs all departments, marketing, sales, product, product management, finance, could be also your investor teams are raising funding or also your voice if you're a public company as you go and you look into market to really make them understand these are our buyers, these are our customers, these are not our customers. Sometimes defining who you do not sell to is the most important thing in a company for everyone to understand. The anti-customer. So once you have that though, then you have to say, well, what's our value proposition? How do we position that? What are the most important things? What are the stories of the hero journey of the customer that are created that then become the standard communications internally? So everyone's on the same page being customer centric and externally, the expressions of how you deliver value from the operators, from the customer's perspective, because potential customers, your prospects want to hear from your customers. They don't really want to hear from you so much. They're not so interested in that. Those stories are not as interesting. If So if in your marketing communications, your company is the hero and you're telling your company's hero journey, you're off base. Your customers are the hero. And the stories that tell their success and how you help have a part, but it's their success. Those are the important things. Your go-to-market work, your market research, your personas, they all inform the stories that you should collect in your communications. You, you're someone who speaks to a lot of marketers. You hire a lot of marketers. You've, I'm sure, trained and led many marketers. Yep. What kind of skills do you think are actually important for somebody? We can talk about go-to market skills or just general marketing skills in 2023. What kind of things do people need to know to be able to do this job? I think people that have good communication skills, good communication skills are fundamental. I think people that have high degrees of empathy 
Some people say that that's soft skills, but being empathetic, being able to have the patience to listen and understand, then you leverage your communications and and you you tell the stories, you make the creative that stands out. Honestly, attitude is 50% of the game. Hire people with positive attitudes that are constructive mindsets that want to learn, want to collaborate and contribute. It's half the battle. All the other skills you can teach, you can train, you can mentor, assuming that, of course, they, they have just core level of competency, right, in general. I think marketing is an interesting career path because, one, it's very diversified. So you can get from hard science all the way to really creative artistic and a whole range in between. And so people who are flexible, want to learn or contribute. That That's the main thing. Everything else uh, changes so quickly. How do you even keep up with it? You have to love to learn and, and pivot because you do that a lot in this industry. You mentioned a minute ago that you reported to a CRO. I think it was at Yext. So mm-hmm. there's this... I think a balance of, you know, you have the chief marketing officer, the traditional CMO role. And oftentimes I hear these days of marketing reporting into revenue. And even the term revenue is, you know, that, that title CRO only popped up a few years ago before that, you know, head of sales or whatever. What do you think the balance is in marketing between thinking about the dollar, the dollar, the dollar versus the equity piece, which is, what do, our, what, is our, what do people think about us? How does our brand resonate? And, and all those kind of soft things. How much of a marketer's mind should be thinking about the revenue versus what's all that equity like? Okay. So if I were to break that down, one, let's talk about CRO versus head of sales. So typically, if you say someone's a VP of sales or chief sales officer, then that's traditional sales process. So you have leads, you turn them in opportunities, put them through a sales pipeline, you close the business, closed one, revenue is counted for, gets billed, customer onboarded, and you're done, move on to the next. Chief revenue officer is a broader view that says any avenue that generates revenue, so that traditional method we just talked to is included, but also renewals, account management, services, consulting, If you think about it, there's other contributors. Usually it's not the majority of revenue, but it's this reoccurring revenue that occurs. That all flows up to one person because there's a philosophy or an attitude that says you can't separate it. It's part of the overall prospect to customer and then retained customer journey. So there's some validity to it. And for SaaS models that also have consulting components, kind of makes sense to me. So that's a little bit of why CRO. As far as like CMO or a head of marketing, I would say one that most organizations are really challenged to understand what marketing does. And it depends on the perspective of the department. So revenue believes that marketing's job is to help them deliver more revenue, period, stop. Okay, well, that's demand gen, usually. And then if you look at the valuation of the business or if a business is large enough, then this idea of brand equity is in play. So certainly it's understood by some companies, usually consumer goods companies like Nike. There's undeniably brand equity there. You put a swoosh on anything, you get paid more for that item. Period. Stop. There's brand equity there. But how do you value that in a software company or a SaaS company or a services company? Like Unless you're very large and established, 
usually meaning cumulatively over a period of years, you've spent millions or billions of dollars building awareness and educating people about your capabilities. Should it be valued? I think brand is pretty simple. It boils down to customer centric and this idea that you do continuous value delivery. Number two. And number three is every single member of the business is responsible for that brand. That's the key to a successful brand. Everything else, if you stay focused on that, everything flows from it. Your products flow from it, your sales engagements, your marketing messages, how you handle the customer support and success. Even your finance teams can be involved with that. So in doing that, you need a clear understanding. And once again, we got back to our personas and our buyers and our stories and our journeys. And that's how I'll tie that all together. You make it sound so easy. I guess that's why you're the, you're the CMO. That's why. That's why. <laughs> but CMO is a tough job. So in, in an organization, there's the battle of the budget is how I would say it. So usually there's a lot of pressure from finance and revenue. Once again, hyper growth curve. We want to grow really fast. Time dilation. We're going to shrink the period of time that we have allowed ourselves for certain levels of achievement or success. Where do we spend that money? That money is limited. So demand gen has gotten this reputation of being scientific. I spend a dollar, I get a dollar plus back, hopefully. Software companies, MarTech companies, Marketo, Pardot, all these software companies have done a great job of convincing everyone that indeed this is what you should do. Facebook, Google, they love convincing us that this is what we should do. The reality is everyone feels that they have visibility and control. You're going to find in finance and revenue teams, sorry to stereotype, but visibility and control, predictability is a big deal. And that's the mindset that they have. So there'll be a lot of pressure to use traditional demand gen technologies and efforts. Brand is seen as soft. And so what marketing departments need to do is measure and show brand impact, brand influence, brand gains, and then map that to revenues. And you can do that. I hope so. I hope so. Okay, Seth, this was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing these insights today. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Modern Marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity, empowering marketers to build customer communities that drive revenue. We create massive demand via social, influencer, content, paid media, and of course, podcast. Learn more at Influicity.com.